You're listening to Trek FM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we look forward to seeing you there. This is Steve Sansweet of Rancho Obi-Wan, and you're listening to the 602 Club. There was a little bar in Mill Valley where all the Starfleet trainees used to go. The 602 Club. You know it. <laughs> I was there more times than I can remember. Welcome to the 602 Club. Coming at you with this supplemental deep in the, well, the, the muck and the mire of Corellia. I gotta say, Dryden was right. This place stinks. Uh, but what doesn't stink is that I'm here with my good friend and buddy, John Mills, as we're going to be diving into a uh, Star Wars book called Most Wanted that is linked there. It's actually the tie-in novel, the lead-in novel for Solo, A Star Wars Story. So, John, welcome back, man. Thanks, man. It's, uh, it, it, I got back a lot quicker this time. Uh, <laughs> you did, you did, yeah, slide, uh, and I knew in. the way to your heart because um, y- you and I both really liked Solo. Yes, and during that conversation, we were talking about how much we wanted to see more of Kira, yeah, and Han, yeah, and and uh, so I knew if I dangled this in front of you like a, uh, I don't know, some sort of carrot. A, I don't. What, I don't know steak. what a Star Wars carrot is. A bantha you know, steak. A bantha steak. Yeah, yeah let's there just go with that. Or or a <laughs> glass of blue milk that you'd come running. So, uh, Corellian whiskey. We'll go with that. That's a little more refined. Yeah, that works. That um, works. <laughs> with a bantha steak. Yes. Okay. Uh, but we're <laughs> before we dive into the book, uh, super excited to have you guys here. Thanks for joining us. Um, make sure you find us all over the place. We're on, uh, you know, iTunes. iTunes.com slash Trek FM. You can find all the shows we're doing there and. Gosh, uh, you know, help out the show. Help other people find the 602 Club. Give us a star rating review. It really does help people find the show. Uh, and you'll get called out on the show if um, you, uh, you know, give us any kind of review. So uh, then uh, you can find us on Twitter. Uh, make sure you're following us there. Uh, you, you know, follow us. You can see everything that's coming out from the network. You can interact with the hosts from the network. It's a lot of fun. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash trekfm. And we have the listeners-only discretion group over there on Facebook called the Babel Conference. Two ways to get there. Uh, you can go to Facebook, type in the keyword Babel, you'll find it. Uh, or if you're on our website at trek.fm, any of the show pages, you'll see a discussion button. Just hit that and it'll bring you over there as well. Uh, and then you can talk to everybody else who's listening in on the network and the hosts about all the shows that we got coming out, as specifically as you got here, the 602 Club. And then last but not least... Uh, Trek.fm slash contact, choose a show, choose the 602 Club, and that will allow you to send me and anybody else that's on that week an email if there's something that you want to talk to us about. And gosh, you know, it's been a long time since we've gotten any emails, and I love getting them, so email us up, uh, you know, so that's a lot of fun. John, uh, so Most Wanted uh, is by Ray Carson. Yes. And uh, like some of the other uh, Star Wars movies that we've had, We've gotten a an adult book, a young adult book, a middle grade book. Uh, so this is the young adult book. And so far, I think you'll agree with me that 
the young adult books have been pretty successful. I mean, we've had Lost Stars, um, we had Ahsoka, we had Rebel Rising, you know, um, and now we've got Most Wanted in the, in that list. And so, um, I I think oh, I just want to say right up front, I feel like people are doing themselves a disservice if they are skipping over these because they're like, oh, that's YA. Yeah, I, I I think that's true. I, I I remember talking about it with uh with Mike Schindler about it where. Uh, he asked a, a great question because I was talking about how people aren't paying attention to young adult books. And he said, what does that even mean anymore? And it's mm-hmm. a great question because what does it even mean? I mean, if this yeah. thing is quote unquote canon, if this is the story of these characters, well, then what does that, mm-hmm. you know, appellation yeah. mean in any, in any real sense? I mean, if if you're a completist and you want to read everything that's quote unquote canon, um, then you're sort of obligated to read this regardless of how they classify it in the bookstore. Well, yeah. I mean, I, gosh, I forgot to mention, you know, we had Leia Princess of Alderaan by Claudia Gray. It still know, blows my mind were... that that's uh, qualified as young adult. Like, yeah, me too. Um, we did have, you know, the Legends of Luke Skywalker book that I covered with Bruce Gibson, which was really interesting mm-hmm. talking about his adventures, um, you know, b- before uh, The Last Jedi and kind of in that 30-year time period, which... Uh, really enjoyed some of those stories there. So, all in all, I you know, I think you are as a fan just kind of doing yourself a disservice. You're missing some of these stories. Especially, I would I would point out um, one that really stands out beside Lost Stars, which is critically acclaimed by all fans, like and critics alike. I think mm-hmm. you know everybody loved that book. But for me personally, the one that has added the most to the film, I think, uh, was Rebel Rising. I really appreciated the way that they filled in the time gap from when we have uh, Jin uh, go with Saw to the point you see her in prison. That's a very long time, and they fill all of that in, and it does a very good job of giving it a better picture of, of um, Jin and um, of course Saul's group and everything like that what's going on so uh, you know this you know when we get to most wanted it's looking to be able to do that same type of thing yeah I uh, I, I never got around to Rebel Rising um, which I you know I, I've been told numerous times is is to my shame but the, uh, the this book is fascinating to me specifically because I don't and and the thing is this is not a uh, a criticism or being dismissive this is not I don't think that this is a book that is vital to enjoying solo this isn't the sort of thing where I think that your understanding of the characters hinges on reading this book I mean the, the film is a failure if it is sort of thing from my my perspective however this is a book where it does lend a lot of understanding and enrichment and for lack of a better term confirmation of reads that you get of the characters uh, from the film and what I mean by that is it basically confirmed things that I thought about these characters and that's good because that means that very clearly this book was written with a uh, a you know, a definite purpose and a tremendous amount of skill put into it. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I I think, you know, for me personally, when it comes to a tie-in book, what I want it to do is to enhance how I view a film. 
in the sense that while I watch it, I am then thinking about, oh, well, I can see how, you know, that the the book now brings to life certain scenes or certain character moments, you know, or like you were saying, confirms, you know, certain things the uh, of reads that you had because of what happens here. And I, I feel like, you know, uh, in, in a lot of ways, we called it the expanded universe because it was expanding our knowledge of Star right. Wars. In a lot of ways, I think when these books do their job best, they expand what I thought of, say, Rogue One or what now I think maybe of Solo or, you know, whichever film it is. And I think that's really, uh, that's the key to me because I finished this book and then I went and saw Solo again. And there were times where I was thinking to myself, oh man, that I like the way that that works together, you know, to, to create a fuller understanding or just it, it enhances what my enjoyment of the film really. And I think, you know, any tie in book that can do that to me is a success. Sure. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's a fine line to tread because they can't, they can't put something in here that, uh, you know, they, that, that you can't, enjoy the film without you know like it, right. it is a really fine line because it, it, they you know the, the author runs the risk of retreading something or the author runs the risk of anything that might seem repetitive or slow you down but you know I, Ray Carson is gifted in the sense that she can take the characters and move them for like put them in a place that makes sense and then move them forward to a point where I don't feel that I need it doesn't feel like it needs to butt right up against solo and be an opening right before it. Say the way that, um, that one James Luceno book, uh, before episode three was Catalyst. supposed to function. Uh, no, 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 not rogue one. Um, the one before episode three, uh, oh, yes. the, uh, uh labyrinth of uh, evil layer of deception. No, it was oh, labyrinth, yeah, labyrinth of yep. evil was yep. supposed to butt right up against episode three. And that was always mm-hmm. sort of something that worked against it because it was like, well, you're sort of, you know, limited with that. This has yes. a little more room to breathe. And one of the things, one of the insights I thought about the book that was very amazingly telling to me was, and I think something that resonated about the film solo for me as well, is the fact that this confirms Han as the good guy, as mm-hmm. somebody who's noble in spirit no matter what else he tries to pretend to be. And I, what is what is extremely telling about that is you and I respond very well to that. Other people respond very well to that. But I wouldn't be surprised if there were people that don't respond well to it because what was the one thing that people really disliked about changing Han's action in the original Star Wars was it took away his ruthlessness, his awfulness, if you will, and I think that a book like this is great because it very much establishes that baseline of how people will do things to survive, but they could still be good people inside. Mm-hmm. You know, I really like you mentioning that because so, you know, after seeing Solo, um, I went back and I watched Rogue One again, and then I watched A New Hope again just to kind of see how these play out, you know, because they, they, they all kind of play in a similar time period. Um, and I mean, I know Sulo's 10 years before, but you know, yeah, sure. But I was also interested to see how Solo would play with what we get 
of the character then in A New Hope. And one of the things I really liked there is that I felt like that there are there are seeds planted in this book, then there are seeds planted in, in Solo that lead us to get to that character who doesn't want to have anything to do with causes. Because there's even a specific point in here where Han talks about causes only cause war and get people killed. Right. And he wants to be free of that. He just wants to be free. And and I loved the way you kind of see that progression where he doesn't want to be tied down by some sort of cause. He just wants to be able to fly around in his ship with his buddy and enjoy life. That's his goal. Right. Uh, and, you know, so when Luke or, you know, Leia or anybody's talking about him in a cause in, in, in the, um, the first Star Wars film, it makes complete sense where this guy's like, no, I don't want any piece of that. I just want my money and I want to get out of here. Um, but then you get that moment where he, he does come back and he saves Luke and you're like, of course Han does because that's who Han is. He's the good guy. He can't turn his back on these people when they need him the most. Right. And I think that there's also, because there is something in this book specifically where Kira says, uh, that one of the things that, you know, strikes her about Han and that she finds, uh, you know, I'm paraphrasing here, but finds attractive about him is every being they meet Han treats them as a person Han does not Mm -hmm. treat anybody dismissively and I think that's such a beautiful thing because it it speaks to the idea uh, again of sort of that thread that Solo acts as you know in a lot of ways a prequel to The Force Awakens as much as to anything else because you have that moment in Force Awakens where Finn says you know you can understand that thing and Han says, yeah, and that thing can understand you, so watch what you say. It it really reinforces that whole thing of like how Han is, uh, he's a true fan of judging people based on who they are, not in how he perceives yes. them. And I, I love that because it makes his character so interesting and it explains why somebody who drops his you know, shipment of spice at the first sign of an Imperial boarding party or somebody who screws up a double cross or somebody who, somebody who can get away with uh, screwing over Kanja club twice, you know, it, it takes three times. He's a guy who can read people who can relate to people. And so they always want to give Han a break. They always want to let Han slide because Jabba does right. Exactly. It, yeah. He, and, and that, also speaks to his fatal character flaw, which is he takes he's aware of that in a sense mm-hmm. and takes that to the extreme. And you see it here as well, where he's willing to uh, sacrifice any chance at becoming, you know, the quote unquote, the head scrum rat. Because he's able to say, you know, it deserves it for Kira, but by him throwing himself away he can leverage any positivity that he has to screw over Rebolt. And I think that's just such a... Right. Like, he does understand how to turn a situation into a positive for somebody. Well, and and I love that, too. Like, you're bringing that up, and it's definitely the very end of the book, but, I mean, we're in full spoiler territory, as people know, when we're talking about these kind of things, Um, which is he's also doing it because that's what he knows Kira needs to be able to come up with her plan for them to escape. You right. know, and so he's 
he's found this very clever way to utilize every tool in his shed at that point yep <laughs> to make sure that you know she is uh where she needs to be so that they can then escape um and again what it comes down to is you know han in this book says having one person in the galaxy to fly with somebody you trust to have your back mm-hmm. like that's han's view of the galaxy and what makes it go round. That's what he wants. And I really liked um, how that plays into that idea of what you were talking about, is that Han gives everybody a chance, but once their actions show what who they are, then Han makes the decision, okay, do I just disregard this person, uh, or do I continue to trust them? And... I love that because I feel like we we have so much we can learn from Han, which is to say, allow people to to show you by their actions who they are and then whether or not they're worth your time. Yes, exactly. And also that even extends to the way he views ships because yes, uh, like one of the interesting things, of course, in Force Awakens is Han has lost possession of the Millennium Falcon, which we all know is his his true Mm -hmm. love and joy. And he shows up with another freighter. And in this book, at the end, the you know they uh, the Caldanas show up with this beat up old husk of a freighter that looks disgusting. But Han has an internal monologue while he's standing in there, where he's like, "I could show this the proper respect it deserves." He's he is all about function, and all about he doesn't care how it looks. He cares about how it works, and he so that speaks even more to how he addresses people. He doesn't care yep. about the outer appearances. If it can do what it need if it can do what it needs to do or if the person can do what they say they're going to do, then that's all he cares about. And like you said with the freedom, that's all he cares about. He doesn't care about power. He doesn't care about leverage. He just cares about getting out there. Well, and and it just brings to mind, I, I mean, just having watched A New Hope, it's it, you know, it's so true when Han's like, she might not look like much but she's got it where it counts. I've made a lot of special modifications myself. You know, Han is very proud of the 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 fact that yes, the Falcon when you look at her on the outside, you know, when Leia's like you came in that, you're a lot braver than I thought and he's like nice. Um, you know, but he knows. He knows what the Falcon is capable of and he knows obviously uh, she holds L3 now. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, after Solo. But there's there's other things. And so, yes, I, I, I feel like, you know, Han, Han's philosophy of life is don't judge something by its outward appearance. You know, don't judge a book by its cover. Right. Han's very being is, is, is about that. But once he opens up that book and sees what's inside, he may just chuck it away because you may not be worth his time. Uh, and I, I think, you know, it, it, I, I really like that. I think it's really smart. Um, yeah, but but then you see as a counterpoint, Kira, her she looks at somebody and what's inside and and those sorts of things. But it's about how it can benefit her. And so you see, I, I think I think that Carson does a great job of priming the pump, as it were, of showing why she would be able to turn her back on Han in solo again again we're we're in full you know spoiler mode and everything so that the movie's going to get 
get spoiled as well, I guess. But uh, we, I mean, we already did that on a previous episode of the 602 Club. So there you go. But like the, you know, the fact that she, what she's looking for is she's taken in by the decadence of the engineer's ship. She's taken, and I love the fact that it was a Nubian vessel because that's a callback to the prequels in and of itself. But the fact that she... Oh, Nubian. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, but the the fact that she, you know, is, is looking at all of these things and the good life and all of that stuff, but through the entire book, it's about what somebody can do for her to further her goal. How can this thing further her goal? And we can see also her being enamored with the power that the engineer has, with the the sway and we can see that seed already in place in a very logical fashion for how she can be seduced by, uh, by Crimson Dawn. Yeah. I I think that the thing that Carson is able to do here that, you know, then the movie was able to do so well is nuance. Mm -hmm. Kira is such a nuanced character because as much as the money and the power, and the fancy clothes, and the great ship, and the idea of freedom from anyone else appeal to her. She also sees the way that the engineer treats people, Mm -hmm. which is that she treats them as what she calls assets. Uh, She calls people assets. And and once they are no longer useful to her, Kira understands that that she will discard them. And because of her relationship with Han, and I think you would say he's known to Soul, uh, the Rodian that they run around with throughout the entire book, she, they rub off on her, this friendship right. that they have, where she, you get the sense that she would have a very hard time, and she won't here. She will not give them up you know she has the opportunity to go off with the engineer but she chooses to stay with her friends because she realizes they they probably have a better chance of survival if she's there yes and i think that there's um you can see where if han had stayed a constant in her life that she would have turned out differently and it's you know i I always say i i think of that that saying to the world you may be just one person, but to one person you are the world. And I see that with her and Han very clearly in this, that they are, they could have worked so well together. And I think that her life with Han, if she had not been nabbed at the spaceport on Corellia in Solo, would have been different. She winds up with Crimson Dawn, and I think that this book provides a a very beautiful hint at how difficult it was for her to run across Han again. She had walked away. It was over, and then he shows up, and it's got to be difficult for her because she has, you know, in three years spent the the one person who was really left showing her the way of not treating people as just tools to be used is removed and she winds up with the crimson dawn where the entire organization is through the idea of people are tools that can be used and and so it, i i think that 
that is another place where the, the book is really successful in adding that shading uh, to the character. And as for Sul, uh, I pronounce it uh, Sulo, uh, the Rodian, I really think Ray Carson does a great job of portraying how difficult a relationship with a brother can be sometimes. <laughs> you know, that your brother can irritate you, can drive you nuts, but you don't hate him. You can just be maybe a little disappointed that you guys aren't on the same wavelength. Yeah, no, I liked that a lot as well. I, I thought um, it added some fun um, because I thought this book would just be about Kira and Han, but having that third person there uh, really impacts both Han and Kira. Yeah. You know, I loved the, the way in which he kind of informs how they are going to be for the rest of their life. Um, and, and part of that came down with, to just who he was, and part of that really comes down to uh, his thought process um, and his ideas about the world, his worldview. I thought that was really nice to see them uh, and, and Ray Carson add something like that to this book um, because it, it gives us a glimpse of a, a completely different side of life because he wasn't born into this life. Um, you know, his parents die and, you know, they were a well-off uh, family from Coruscant who had moved here because their dad got a job. His dad dies, and then his brother blows all their savings, you know, on a uh, street race, you know, like right. on 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 a speeder, and he ends up having to work for uh, the White Worms just to make it. And so I just, yeah, again, you you're getting a whole other side, and and he, uh, yeah, I really like that. Um. One more thing I wanted to uh, to say about Kira before I get before I forget, honestly, which is um, I also thought it was very fascinating to see how she's much more of a planner. She's mm-hmm. much more of a person who kind of goes by the rules, by the book. She, I, I, I was putting in the notes the idea that she's a lot like Hermione from um, the Harry Potter series, oh, where sure. she's. She's somebody who's who's who likes to study things, who likes to understand things, but she also has this sense of playing by these rules that Han realizes all of those rules in the life that he's in are kind of meant to be broken. As long as you provide people what they want, you can break the rules. Um, See, and yeah, it, I just thought that was fascinating. Yeah, I uh, th- what what's funny, and th- this is you know read into this what you will. Something that I really enjoyed was that I I saw a little bit of my relationship with my own wife uh, in the relationship between Han and Kira. In this sense, that my wife, like Kira, is very very much about planning and you know seeing the long game and looking out. And I would classify myself much more as the crisis manager, where I don't necessarily think down the road but plans break and so it really is a situation in my own life where she'll plan 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 you know till she's blue in the face and then we go somewhere oh no and they said it was going to be clear but it's raining or something like that and I will literally look at her and say hold on and go over and get the ponchos and you know like it's it's all about how you operate in the flow and I think that is one of the things and so you know, it speaks to something that you and I talked about over on aggressive negotiations. This is why I think Kira is such a good fit for Han. This is why I think Kira and Han, like it's so tragic that they didn't end up together because they are literally two halves of the same coin. 
where she is that one side, you know, she's like you said, she's the planner. She, she looks down the road and Han is the one where when everything goes sideways, chill out, I got this, I'll figure it out and I can think on my feet. Like, I love that about them, and I love the chemistry that's mm-hmm. built in this book between them. Yes. Oh, I I absolutely agree with you. I, and and part of that I thought was so interesting because, you know, Kira is somebody who, uh, you know, look, Han understands he needs a person. You know, mm-hmm. he, need, he needs somebody to be his person. Uh, and what Kira sees is more of this idea of she wants to be uh with people but in the context of a group like the white worms or like a crimson dawn later on you know she she feels much more comfortable in an organization mm. than just with one person or a couple of people right and i think that's really interesting because it, it's almost as if that group gives her some sort of comfort level that she doesn't have otherwise. She likes the structure. She likes the rules about it, you know? Whereas Han, is, he wants to be able to just be copacetic with one person that, you know, will follow him around the galaxy, basically. Or not um, even follow, just somebody who can work with him. Who can... Right. yes, yeah. You know, who, who who's willing to do the same thing, which is, you know, go around, find out what works. And I... Mm-hmm. It's really... It's really, in a sense, really beautiful because Kira may not wind up being that person, but the fact that Han winds up with somebody who is that, you know, it's the importance of that that person in your life. It doesn't necessarily need, and you know, there, there's very much a, a thread throughout this that you don't necessarily need a romantic relationship to define who you are and those sorts of things, and you know, all do applause for that sort of, uh, you know, thread put out there. But at the same time, it is at the idea that going alone isn't necessarily going to be what works. That you right. you do need something around you, someone with you who gets mm-hmm. you, who understands you, who can uh, take care of those things that you miss. You know, so somebody who's yep. got your back. Well, and one of the things that I think is is really interesting there too, because this kind of fascinating. You know, the the engineer tells Kira that money is freedom, and 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 the question I I was asking myself then, but is that true, especially when that your freedom comes at the expense of others, which usually then ends up affecting you down the road, right? Mm-hmm. And and it, it kind of brought me all the way back to the Phantom Menace, like where. You know, Obi-Wan's like, but you're in a symbiont circle. Right. What af- happens to one it will affect the other. And so this this idea, uh, especially during the time of the Empire and the Dark Times, is that everybody is out for themselves at the expense of others. And it's what it's this perpetual motion that the Emperor is keeping in line with people doing that, which keeps him in power then, mm-hmm. which is what I thought was so fascinating then about, you know, with Solo and Enfys Nest, where she talks about at the very end how uh, Crimson Dawn and the five syndicates are, are, the syndicates are doing these things in league with the Empire, that it it's part and parcel of the same thing. And so, but I, I just thought this is such a, an interesting message because Han specifically rejects that. He will not take his freedom at the expense of others. Right. 
Yes. And I think that's a beautiful, awesome, incredible message to see in the world in which we live today. Like, you know, when we talked about, you know, the idea, uh, and we've talked many times on, on aggressive negotiations, this whole idea of what, how, why George created Star Wars, mm-hmm. which is to teach these kind of classic moral lessons. And that is, I think, one of the most important moral lessons. And I, I, I feel that so strongly here in Most Wanted. And I think it really helps bring that out and accentuate it even more when you watch Solo now in light of this. And, and it's just this expansion. Oh, gosh, I'm sorry. I'm just getting kind of like jazzed up. But I feel like Ray Carson really did this movie a solid in such a beautiful way by helping to just accentuate those themes. Yeah, and I, I think that uh, she definitely understands uh, in, in an important and fundamental way uh, the universe that was created, uh, and yes, the, yes, and also the idea of uh, you know the not just the corruption angle of it, or the fact that the emperor benefits from the fact that everybody's fighting among each other for little pieces of the pie, as opposed to suddenly realizing that you know, the head is rotten sort of thing. Yep. Um, But also the fact that Star Wars has a very environmental message embedded throughout it. And that is one of the things that she very much picks up on because it's the, in the movie solo, the reversal of expectations about what Corellia was like was, Mm. was wonderful to me. I loved it. And it it really spoke to in the bit of Corellia that we were on of the dangers of industrialization and, you know, the the downsides of those things, things that are left unchecked and, and bad practices. You get all of that just in the intro of Solo. But here it's specifically addressed about how easy it is as well, because when they go to the good part of town, it's manicured lawns and estates and they can't see what's going on. It's only the people that live in the despoiled parts of Corellia that understand what's happening in terms of the environment and the dumping into the oceans and the dumping into the rivers and the smell and all of the sewage that goes on. And I, I think that that's a great thing. And and then Carson also brings in the fact that the nationalization of, of industry yes, has been yes. used as a means to foster further corruption. And that is very much, very much in the DNA of what was set up back in 77. I mean, the whole thing with Biggs, his conversation with Luke, if anybody hasn't uh, seen it, the conversation with Luke, the world building that goes on um, in, in terms of how the galaxy works uh, from the original film is fascinating and this book finds its spiritual you know it is a spiritual heir to that very uh fundamental aspect of the series one of the things i think that um you're mentioning here is this this idea of how carson does the world building and i think it's it's so strong but one of the things that I love about it is how, like you said, and, and it started with how they decided to do Corellia with the solo films. And I'm right now rereading, uh, reading for the first time, A.C. Crispin's mm-hmm. solo trilogy. And yes, Corellia is a very different yeah. place there. Um, it's, it's, 
a place you'd want to actually visit. This Corellia is not. Um, and I, I think that kind of reversal of what fans thought from maybe an EU source, but changing it in a way that makes complete sense so that when you when you see it in the film and when you read it here, uh, you get why they're going the way they are yeah. in the same way I felt like the Clone Wars did, you know, when they would change certain things, certain story type elements like for the Mandalorians and that kind of stuff where there was a very specific idea for why George did that. And so um, I see this in that same vein and I think it's wonderful. I love your calling out the uh, environmental message because I was thinking about that too, just the way that Corellia has... Um, Basically, it's the it, it almost seems like the worst form of capitalism in mm-hmm. a lot of ways um, before uh, the empire came and then nationalized things and made it even worse uh, through just rampant. I mean, corruption is everywhere now. Like, yeah, um, it, it just feels like the the title for crawl for episode three. Corruption is everywhere. Uh, right. <laughs> instead yeah. of war is everywhere. Yeah. Um, and I, the other part about this, too, is that I really like, you know, we had kind of, I think, discussed this a little bit. And I know I've discussed it with other people. Like, you know, they mentioned the silos uh, in the film. Yes. And getting a further piece of what that's like, that basically it's like the white worms, but like 20 times worse mm-hmm. than that, was really hard to kind of like, because when you start to think through that, you're like, oh, man, that's. I don't even know. I don't even want to imagine that, honestly. Yeah, it's um the the one thing that I found very intriguing, very intriguing, was the fact that uh, Kira built her uh, her hideout where a tree was. This one hard scrabble tree that refused to let go of life, and I find that also an interesting echo. I don't know whether it was conscious or subconscious an interesting echo of the tree in the last Jedi, but also the fact that we got that story about Luke going and getting the, uh, the two trees. And I, I forget the comics name, uh, the shattered empire, shattered yeah. empire where Luke going and getting the trees. Yeah. And Yoda has the magic tree. So you see again, that's that, that seed of nature but also trees always figure very big into it. And of course, Endor is full of trees and those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. There, in, in a sense, there's a very um, Tolkien feel to things with the mm-hmm. reverence that trees mm-hmm. are given. And, it's, uh, and to see it repeated here, I think, makes it feel even more a part of the Star Wars universe. Yeah, I really like that. Um, because I, I thought that that was... Just a nice touch, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and, and then, too, because she then kind of hollowed out the outside and pulled that dirt to the outside, you know, so people didn't suspect there was really anything there other than a mound, um, you know, and just the way it was done, it was it was it was almost like their little like nature preserve but in a like the dingy nature preserve you right. know like there's something somewhat natural about where they are um that connects them together you know and i that yeah and and in some ways like um those roots go deep and and i think maybe maybe that's what the carson is going for those roots go deep and and the roots for her and han 
this will, you know, transport us into what will happen in Solo and that they will not be able to let go of those roots that they have, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and that in the end, you know, that the choice that Kira makes is is somewhat based on the fact that, uh, you know, she made the same choice for Han at the beginning of Solo, you know, yeah. which was to to tell him to go, to do what she needed to do to make sure that he has the life that they both wanted. Uh, and so, yeah, um, yeah, gosh, we could probably talk more about that, but, (laughs) um, a couple of different things I thought was interesting. Um, you know, the EU is famous for the empire being xenophobic, uh, Mm -hmm. and, uh, pretty much just human based, um, uh, especially as the empire grabbed more hold. Um, but I thought it was really interesting that the Kaldana syndicate is Basically, that they are a, a bunch of xenophobic humans who are trying to control, you know, black markets in different areas like this. And I thought that was that was a nice touch, and it, it just called back to um, something that is very familiar again from like the AC Crispin novels, where she's talking about the Empire um, and and even the reason that Han's out of the Empire uh, and the Academy because he saved Chewie because they were going to kill him. Yeah, there is um there there's a thread there that's very much worth examining and it is that uh, you know to to put it as delicately as possible um Hitler didn't exist in a vacuum, right? For the empire to be xenophobic, it would need the people that constituted it to be so as well. And I think that there's also uh, very interesting that it's not just humans in the Kaldana syndicate that also the droid Gotra is, you know, Tool says, Tool's been Han's quote-unquote friend. Han cultivated this relationship with Tool, and Tool says flat out, eh, if we got to kill some humans to make this happen, it's cool. And that, you know, that in and of itself reveals how cutthroat everybody is where they are you know people go tribal at a certain uh, aspect and that just reinforces the idea that Palpatine would encourage that because if people have gone tribal if the Caldana syndicate hates aliens and the droid Gotra hates humans and the humans hate everybody and the Rodians are all you know like it it really demonstrates how Fostering division creates a lot of problems and benefits people who want that division out there. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and I've been thinking about this, too, you know, just in terms of the larger scope of the galaxy and Palatine, that has to feed the dark side of the force. Sure. Yeah. Makes perfect sense. So, yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, I, I liked both of these groups because... Um, Again, they they felt very um, very much like something that I would have seen in 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 the EU, and so I felt like I I liked that callback um, to kind of bring some of those things forward. But I also felt like you know uh, the droid Grota uh, uh, or the Gotra was really well done because it obviously kind of connects a little bit with uh, L three yeah. and her goal, and yet of course the way that she goes about this is not to. You know, she's not trying to kill human beings. 
She just wants to have droids have more rights, to have more freedom. Um, so it's a very different, it, it's almost like L3 is kind of the, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. to <laughs> yeah. Droid Grotra's uh, uh, Malcolm X, you know? Although, like, although it is always important to point out that Malcolm X uh, recanted of the more radical stuff uh, by the end. Yes, this is true. And, uh, you know, was a little bit more Martin Luther King Jr. about it. Um, mm-hmm. So, it, it, all that to say, if you haven't read the autobiography of Malcolm X, go out and do that. Um, yeah, I you know, I think that... Um, there's a lot of potential here because one of the things I was I was excited about with Solo was the evolution and Rogue One as well is the evolution of how we are all thinking about artificial intelligence and how we're going to relate to it as we consider it more and more of an inevitability. And I think that Carson does a great job in this book of addressing that as well and being very thought provoking. And I, I came out of this book saying to myself this is a thread I want more people to pull on with Star Wars. I really want this to become a thing, a sideline. I'd even entertain a series of books or even a a standalone movie about this idea of droids who have had enough of being, uh, you know, uh, servants and want to become something more and be regarded as, their own individual beings. And I mean, that gets all the way back to Blade Runner that gets back to, I mean, just, you know, all of these terrific science fiction, uh, you know, uh, even data in Star Trek, what is it going to take for you to consider this, this separate entity as a true being Mm -hmm. and not just as a machine? Well, and and what was fascinating to me too is that, yeah, the way that it kind of connects. Again, I'm going to reference Harry Potter, but it kind of re- re- reflects the whole house elf thing. Sure, that Hermione that. really yeah. gets into, and you know how, how mo- uh, so many house elves they love their job, they love their masters, they're not mistreated, you know, um, that kind of thing, uh, and and so they serve well. And and you, you see that played out in Star Wars with the droids who are treated well, like R two D two or you know K two S O or BB eight, you know, um, where they are treated as people basically, you know. Or I I may I might say this: they're treated like pets, mm-hmm. you know, like beloved pets. Um, and I mean, heck, my mother in law treats her pets better than some humans. So, um, <laughs> you know, I like I, it's it's that kind of thing. And uh, whereas you get the other droids who are mistreated and are treated like just junk, you know, um, and, uh, you know, used to fight each other uh, like we saw in Solo and for entertainment and that kind of stuff. Right. Um, Which, again, very much Brian Daly uh, from Star's End. So, uh, you know, I think the thing that i would like to see though in star wars is for them to do this the star wars way and not go specifically to sci-fi either way in the sense like i don't want to start having the data discussion um necessarily in star i want star wars to have its own unique take on like droids then kind of going does that make sense at all? It does. It does. But at the same time, it would be a very quote unquote Star Wars thing for it to 
go back to the original base root questions that you would see in older sci-fi uh, when they mm-hmm. first started postulating the ideas. I mean, go back to Lige Bailey with uh, with Isaac Asimov's series. Um, yeah, and, yeah. You know, like you can you can do that, and there is a sense of there's nothing new under the sun. But where I agree with you is that there's a real opportunity here for Star Wars to be unique about it. And I think that uh, Solo found a way to be unique about it. I think that Ray Carson found a way to be unique about it in this book where she approached it. And I thought that it was a very great reveal at the end to find out the level of the Gotra's involvement and the surprise Han felt at the fact that Tool said, yeah, if y'all died, whatever, it's cool. We, we're just trying to get our calls yeah. done. <laughs> and Han to be like, oh, I thought we were friends. Okay. You know, like that that sort of thing. And sort of realize that maybe it was for the best that the droid Gotra didn't come out on top. Mm. Oh, yeah. I love that because... I, what what Carson was so skilled at was helping you feel the way Han feels about things in the book. Again, much yeah. like you kind of feel like when you read Harry Potter, you're on Harry's side until somebody explains to you later on why you shouldn't be, basically. Right. You shouldn't see it the way he does. And she does the same thing here with uh, the droids. Yes. Uh, and the Gotra. And I thought, wow, what a great switch because... She leaves you feeling so much of this book that you're on their side. Yeah. Just like Han is. And so until she switches and you're like, oh, crap, no, we don't want them to have it either. <laughs> like, it's great. But and it, and it serves to support Han's character that he's he's not thinking down the road. You could see Kira wondering what is their mm-hmm. angle? What do they want? Yes. Whereas Han is simply willing to accept Tool at face value and say, hey, you're cool, and and go along with it. And then they would have wound up in a pretty terrible situation <laughs> if, yes. if he had just gone along with that. <laughs> and, I, you know, I think that there's also very interesting the, the thread of don't make the presumption, because I think there is a very dangerous presumption that people would say, oh, well, you know, when the singularity or whatever happens, we, we seem to go polar opposites here where we either think it's going to be Skynet or we're going to think it's going to be data. Whereas mm-hmm. I think Carson presents a very much more realistic view of, no, they'll probably much be much more human than we want to realize. And that carries a lot of baggage with it that is not clearly good or bad in either circumstance it depends on how you're looking at yeah it. you know that's a great point uh because again these droids learn from their masters right yep <laughs> what they do yeah. um and they pick up those really bad habits and, and, and in many ways the way that people who raise kids realize start to see their kids doing the things that they do that they wish they didn't you know <laughs> like it's it's very much a part of that so i like i like that a lot um one of the things that i i wanted to go back to um because i thought this was interesting we talked about kira and han and their world views but i thought it was interesting that sulo has a very different world view and that 
he has a, a limited knowledge of what the Force is and what the Jedi were from his time on Coruscant. Yeah. And I, I thought that this was a nice juxtaposition to how Han and Kira think about things, which is kind of a very practical or pragmatic view. You know, Kira is the rationalist, Han's the pragmatist, and Sulo seems to be the more spiritualist about things. Um, and I just, I really liked that this little tiny bit in here, because we don't get a lot of that kind of thing, obviously, we really don't get any of that in Solo. Uh, but to kind of see Han's early interaction with uh, this idea of what this is was was interesting. And and, and also kind of, I, I thought too, I mean, it, it shows how the Empire had really cracked down on these kind of ideas and, and made these things basically just myths that people may or may not have ever really heard about. Right. And I, even the engineer says, you know, I, I, I knew a few Jedi and Han says, Oh, wow. They, they must've really, you know, given the empire what for. And she says, no, not really. They're all dead. And Han, you know, I, I mean, that winds up just supporting his idea that, well, this isn't really something to pay attention to, is it? And I like I think that one of the the things that some fans need to come to terms with is that this is in fact a galaxy where magic happens, and you have to accept the fact that there's going to be mention of it. It's not going to be something where everybody has completely ignored it or rejected it. There will be any decent idea if it gets out into the public will find a way to live and i think that sulo's uh, interaction with you know his limited interaction with the force and his acceptance of it um as something worthy of paying attention to is you know i, I think it's just a very you know, for lack of a better term, realistic way to approach things uh, in terms of building this world. Well, and I think it, it kind of supports something that I thought a lot about. And John, uh, we've been planning to do, and we keep having to move it around for different reasons, but we will do an aggressive negotiations on this, of, of why force users who are in tune with the light side of the Force are so important, why spirituality in itself is important in the Star Wars galaxy. I think this book kind of uh, hints at that idea of that without these things, the galaxy devolves into the worst version of itself. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I really, I liked that both Kira and Han have this experience with this idea of the force and that there is possibly maybe something else out there, but there's nobody to show them the way, you know, there's nobody to show them anything different until of course, you know, Han runs into Luke and Ben years down the road. And so, yeah, and then we get to the point where it's so beautiful and the force awakens where he says, I, I once thought it was a bunch of, you know, tricks and nonsense, but it's true. All of it, the force, the Jedi, you know, and it's like, it's such a, like that little seed in this book, plays out so well then yeah. in The Force Awakens. Yeah, the 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 only thing that I would say really took away uh, a little bit 
for me about the the journey of Han's character um, or even Kira's um, in this book was I would not have sent them to space. Uh, I, they, you know, cause they go off to meet the engineer and the engineers on a ship and they see hyperspace and they see all those sorts of things. And one of the things that I preferred to read into solo was that Han had always dreamed of being a pilot had always dreamed of going through the galaxy. And there's that beautiful, beautiful moment in the film where he sits down in the cockpit of the Falcon and sees it go to light speed. And he has this beatific smile on his face as if a a lifelong dream has been realized and I just preferred the read that Han had never gone to hyperspace before that moment that it was an oh wow moment Mm -hmm. and you know as a result I would have kept them planet side or had the engineer Mm -hmm. somewhere on Corellia that you know, maybe you could get to orbit, but I wouldn't have sent them to, into hyperspace at the very least, um, because I think that's such an important moment for Han and Solo sitting in the Falcon's cockpit when it goes, you know, to to light speed. But mm-hmm. to flip that around, I like the fact that they give more information about his dad Yeah, uh, in this book and his dad sitting there. And it, it's a very classic sort of, story trope to have the parent relate to the child I'm doing this and this sucks but you can do better and I want you to do better than I'm doing right now yeah I like that too Um, I don't remember and correct me if I'm wrong but I felt like in the book when they're in hyperspace that Han and the rest of the kids are in their rooms and they're asleep. Right. And that the only so they don't actually see what hyperspace looks like, do they? They only see what space looks like. I, I don't think that they see hyperspace. Um okay. but So that read for you could still be there. That's the first time he's seen a ship enter hyperspace like that from the cockpit. Right. The the first time he's actually seen yeah. the effect of the stars. Right. But right, right. But you I know, get what you're saying. Right. I, I still under, I completely understand, and I actually had the same reaction. I was like, "Ooh, okay." I, I mean, I can I can go with it. I get it. Um, and I do feel like in there's a part of it that also helps a little bit for those two where they've had the experience of being away, and so it does kind of kick into high gear their desire to get out of there. Sure. Um. So I feel like there's there's some help, but I completely agree with you that there's also a part of me that it, I don't know. It's maybe more. It's it's more like a sixty forty, you know. Yeah. Uh, where it's like, uh, yeah. So, well, I mean, gosh, I honestly think that there's so much more that we could talk about. Um, but you know, as as much as we have talked, I think we really digged into. I think we've really dug into some of the the real meat of this story, which I. I Gosh, again, we talked at the very beginning about this being a YA book. Just go back <laughs> and listen to all the things that we dove into because of this book. Yeah. Thematically and, and, and even just thematically for the Star Wars galaxy that this got into. Um, so, John, if you if you had to, you know, put a good old Goodreads rating on this, I'll give you half stars as well huh. that Goodreads doesn't. Uh, where would you put this one, you think? Uh, I still don't get why it doesn't, but I... It, I good, don't either. Goodreads had boxed me in, and I was going to give it three and a half stars. So, like, right now as I speak, 
it's at three because it's really three and a half. But to your point, sitting here talking about this and going through this, I'm going to give this a solid four with a hearty recommendation that if you want to read a good, well-written, enriching Star Wars story that works well with the film that it's supposed to be a companion piece to, I, I recommend that you go pick up Most Wanted. I think you'll enjoy it. Yeah, I I couldn't agree with you more. Um, I I came away from this book getting exactly what I wanted out of it, which was to know more about Haunted Kira. We didn't even talk about the fact that they're not even in a relationship in this book. Mm-hmm. It's only at the end of the book where they've kind of begun to form the type of relationship, the depth of relationship that they will have in the film. Right. Um, where it started to slowly turn romantic, but there isn't really any of that much in the book. Um, and I, I felt like Carson does such a great job of taking them from being characters who kind of like see each other as adversaries right. to seeing people that each other as people, but even more importantly, somebody that the other cares about and would, you know, sacrifice for because they both sacrifice for each other in this book and i think that's really neat that she puts them through an experience that draws them together and makes them see the worth and the value of the other person um you know being a part of their life and to trust them so uh yeah for me i'm gonna say um this book is four and a half out of five uh grotas um so (laughs) Uh, because, you know, Tool ended up kind of like half a Grota for a while. So, um, but no, I, I really do. I think this is, is so worth your time to read. Uh, I, I think it, it does a great job of expanding your knowledge of the characters and the film. Uh, and it will add to your enjoyment of watching the film uh, as you hopefully go see it back in the theater. Or, of course, when it comes out on, uh, you know, 4K, Blu-ray, digital, awesome, you know, hyperspace edition so with a nifty cover <laughs> uh yeah yeah absolutely so well i'm really i i love oh gosh i just love getting to talk star wars with you john and i'm glad that this brought us back together as it so often does when they release such a fantastic book like this um but uh i want to thank uh ken Tripp and davis grayson for supporting the show through uh patreon their associate producers here and they have been for years on the 602 club um now go over to patreon.com slash trekfm and you can see how you can support the network and make sure all of the shows keep coming to you each and every week it's uh it's a big process to try and put a network this big together each and every week with all the shows we've got coming to you at the quality we've got coming to you and if you do want that to continue um go to patreon.com slash trekfm see how you can become part of our team Every little bit helps. We've got some great contribution levels that you can give out as well to get certain perks too because we love to give back to you even more. Uh, but again, patreon.com slash trekfm. Uh, John Mills is always welcome back in the 602 Club. He has his plaque here on this stool. Um, nobody else can touch it. It's his It's his butt print. <laughs> but John, when you're not here in the 602 Club, where can everybody else find you? Well, you can find me out there on the internet as Kessel Junkie. Uh, I usually spend most of my time on Twitter on all of the social networks. Uh, you can also find me over in the ether floating around co-hosting words with nerds with my pal craig and you can find me over on the nerdparty.com co-hosting great shot kid with mike schindler who should 
you know, his name should be no stranger to those who are fans of Trek FM, where we look at uh, the inner workings of film and the behind the scenes stuff and, you know, have a friendly debate or two about that. And then, of course, the aforementioned co-hosting with you, Matthew Rushing, over on the Nerd Party, Aggressive Negotiations, a special kind of Star Wars podcast, um, which we do weekly and is a great joy for both of us. Uh, It is one of the things I look forward to every week uh, the most. Uh, So, yes, it is a joy to do that show with you. Uh, You can also find me over on the Nerd Party Network where I'm doing Owl Post with Dre Kaufman talking about uh, the Harry Potter universe one chapter at a time, one book at a time. Uh, We are in the middle of the Goblet of Fire, so I hope that you will check that out. Uh, You can also find me here on Trek FM Network doing The Orb with Chris Jones talking about Star Trek Deep Space Nine. And then last but not least, uh, you can find me uh, doing a show called Cinema Stories with my pal Courtney as we talk about films through the lens of faith. Uh, We actually did talk about Solo, and I will give you a hint coming up we are going to be talking about the Harry Potter series through the ones of faith soon. So make cool. sure you check that out. Awesome. Yeah. But all that left to say, thank you so much for joining us and may the force be with you. <laughs>